Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I get asked a lot about how people can help us out the most. There are several ways. Becoming a Patreon member to help us with our costs is a fantastic way. Head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Consider becoming a member for as little as a dollar. Now, another great way is to share our podcasts on your social media and let friends and family know how to listen to us. Thank you for your support. We have a fantastic treat for you today. We are going to cover an Ohioan who is a trailblazer and a visionary who challenged the social and political norms of her time. And despite her difficult upbringing, she was precocious and intelligent. She was largely self-taught. Her legacy continues to inspire and empower women who advocate for social justice today. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Back when Hillary Clinton ran for president of the United States, the press was always careful to say she was the first woman to run for president from a major party. That caveat was necessary because the title of first woman to run for the highest office in the land actually belonged to an Ohio woman from another century. Her name was Victoria Claflin Woodhull, and she was born in Licking County when it was America's western frontier. She ran for president in 1872 as a leader of the women's suffrage movement. But that was actually the least of the things this Renaissance woman did, just one of the many firsts on her resume. Her sister and sidekick, Tennessee Claflin, was right there with her through every chapter of her life. So let's get started. We've got quite a story to get through. Victoria and Tennessee were two of ten children born to Buck Claflin and his wife Roxy in Homer, Ohio, a frontier town in Licking County. Victoria was born in 1838. That was the year of Queen Victoria's coronation, and she was named for her. Interestingly, Queen Victoria will come to be known for the Victorian age, that conservative era when women were considered the wards of their parents and then their husbands with few if any rights. Victoria, that little baby girl namesake born in Ohio, would spend a lifetime bucking those social constraints. Vicky and Tenny, as they were called, were heavily influenced by their father, Reuben Buck Claflin, who was a real 'er ne'er-do-well. When Victoria was nine, he talked her into burning down his grist mill so he could collect the insurance money on it. He left town, Vicky lit the fire, and he came home the next day acting completely surprised at this unfortunate loss. The insurance company saw through this charade and refused to pay him. 
Buck was also caught making counterfeit money. He even tried to eat his fake money when he was caught by police. And he was accused of stealing mail when he became Homer's mailman for a spell. One Woodhull biographer claimed that some of Victoria's statements suggested she may have been sexually abused by her father, as well as occasionally whipped and starved. Other biographers think those telling comments were really just misinterpreted or misstated altogether, and they don't think that was the case at all. In any event, the townspeople of Homer were so fed up with the Claflins. They held a bazaar to raise money so that they could offer it to the Claflins on the condition that they leave town and never come back. The father, Buck, had already been run out of town, so the money was given to Roxy and the children so they would go as well. And they left. They eventually ended up in Cincinnati. By now, Victoria was 11 years old, and she had only had three years of schooling. The sibling who had become her shadow, Tennessee, was just four when they left Homer. While still quite young, Victoria was being groomed by her father for a new con game. Spiritualism was very big in the mid-19th century, Everyone so wanting to believe they could speak to the dead through a medium. And little Victoria was a perfect conduit. Cute, confident, well-spoken. Child preachers were actually not unheard of. So Buck put Victoria on a stage at a big tent revival and watched as Victoria charmed the crowd by speaking to her spirit guides. It's unclear if Victoria truly believed she had the power. She definitely talked about her spirit guides later in life, so she might have been convinced. Then again, she might have truly been gifted. She told her parents that the spirit guides were telling her that one day she would be wealthy and powerful. And boy, was she ever right. At the age of 14, Victoria met Canning Woodhull, a doctor from a town near Rochester, New York. The pair married in Cleveland, Ohio in 1853 when Vicki was just 15. Some accounts say Woodhull abducted her to marry him. It was a tragic union. Canning was a drunk and a womanizer. Vicky had to get a job to support her little family. She had two children by Canning. The first one, Byron, was born mentally disabled. Vicky always believed it was an injury that was caused by her drunken husband who had botched the labor. Victoria divorced Canning. After that, she made her way to California, where she did some acting. She was a natural performer and a storyteller. She traveled a lot, all over the western states. She thought nothing of hopping on a train or a steamship to see what next adventure awaited her, even with her two young children always in tow. One night, while performing, she believed she had a vision of her mom, Roxy, and her sister, Tennessee, telling her to come home. So she did, 
They were still in Cincinnati, and she went to join them for a while. Now, Victoria's experience with her first husband, Canning Woodhull, would cause her to become a voice for the free love movement. Free love didn't mean what it meant in the 1960s. In the 1800s, free love was the radical belief that women should be free to marry, divorce, and bear children without social restriction or government interference. That was, like I said, radical for a period when most people believed a woman's primary function was to breed for whatever man they had been betrothed to. She did believe in monogamy. She just believed a person had the right to change their mind and their marriage partner. And so Victoria wasn't turned off by marriage. She just needed to find the right man. And she thought maybe she had when she met Colonel James Harvey Blood. Colonel Blood was a progressive who supported Victoria's New Age thinking. Actually, Blood and his wife believed in her. They used to meet with her, taking advantage of her medium skills. Then, just the colonel started showing up to their sessions. And after that, Vicky and Colonel Blood ran away together. It's unclear if they ever legally married. Victoria never stopped using the Woodhall name, and there's no evidence that Blood obtained a divorce. But the pair functioned as a married couple for the next several years. In 1868, Victoria and Colonel Blood and Vicky's sister, Tennessee, moved to New York City together. And here's where Victoria's rise to prominence began. It all started when Vicky and Tenny offered their spiritualist abilities to none other than Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore, a widower who had become one of the wealthiest men in America, making his fortune in railroads. Commodore Vanderbilt was smitten with the sisters. They were about a century ahead of their time. They wore skirts so short you could see their boots beneath the hem. They wore men's hats and tight-fitted clothing that was cut in a masculine style. They were both naturally beautiful, but they also exuded a charisma and confidence that many men couldn't resist. It's widely believed the Commodore and Tennessee had a sexual relationship, though Tenny was in her 20s and the Commodore a grandpa in his golden years. The ladies were eager to learn about finances in the stock market, and Commodore Vanderbilt was happy to teach them. In return, they offered him advice using their skills as mediums. In 1869, the country faced an economic crisis. The Panic of 1869, as it was called, brought on by plummeting gold prices. Historians believe about 25 people in New York City alone committed suicide on what became to be called Black Friday. But Vanderbilt was savvy enough about knowing when to buy and sell that he actually made a lot of money when gold dropped, so much so that he made a gift of his profits, $700,000, to Victoria and Tennessee. 
The women used the money to start their own brokerage firm on Wall Street, cementing their place in history as the very first female brokers in the country. On the day they opened, it said nearly 4,000 people flooded their offices to see them. They did very well over the next couple of years. A good many of their clientele were women, widows who had inherited money and were thankful for a place where they felt they were being treated respectfully. And they continued to advise Vanderbilt himself. On one occasion, Victoria told Vanderbilt to sell some shares short, which he did, and earned millions on the deal. After that, the word was out. Newspapers started calling Woodhull and Claflin the queens of finance and the bewitching brokers. Victoria wasn't just becoming a well-known businesswoman. She had always been something of an activist, and New York City had given her a big new stage. She started fighting for workers' rights and women's rights and joined the suffragette movement. She started lecturing on the need to expand the amendment that had given black men the right to vote to include all women. And her connections got her invited to speak to a joint session of a congressional committee. She's reportedly the first woman ever to speak at a joint session of a congressional committee. And Victoria offered a unique take on the subject of women's rights. She said the Constitution didn't exclude women or in any way suggested that women were not the equal of men, that women should simply take their rights, including the right to vote, And all that was needed was for government to move out of the way and stop being an obstacle. Vicky's idea won lots of fans, including Susan B. Anthony. She became a shining star of the suffragette movement. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Victoria and her sister Tenny also started the Woodhull and Claflin Weekly, a rare female-owned newspaper, and they used it to promote women's rights. But they also used their newspaper to talk about that free love idea. And Vicki started lecturing about it as well. In 1871, she gave what became a well-known speech at Steinway Hall. It was a very provocative talk. In the 19th century, American women did not benefit from these ideas of freedom that the country was always bragging about. Women were bound into marriages with few options to escape. Divorce was limited by law, 
and socially scandalous. Victoria asked, why should that be? Men commonly took mistresses and weren't ostracized for it. She also had unique ideas about sex, that the choice of whether to have sex or not was, in every case, the purview of the woman. Because men had the capacity to rape, women, including wives, should always have the final say. Here's one of her quotes. To woman, by nature, belongs the right of sexual determination. When the instinct is aroused in her, then and then only should commerce follow. When woman rises from sexual slavery to sexual freedom, into the ownership and control of her sexual organs, and man is obliged to respect this freedom, then will this instinct become pure and holy. Then will woman be raised from the iniquity and morbidness in which she now wallows for existence, and the intensity and glory of her creative functions be increased a hundredfold. Well, that's an idea that is not only acceptable today, but clearly written into law. But back then, it was outrageous that a wife might refuse her husband or even change her husband when she felt like it. Woodhall said, I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. Now, here's the problem. Back then, there were even a lot of women who didn't believe that. And suffragettes, fearing that their brand new shining poster child, Victoria Woodhull, had confused the causes of sex and the vote, began to turn their back on her. Vicki and Tenny had to push on alone. They published their columns and preached this new world to anyone who would listen. But many of the suffragettes resisted. In 1871, Vicki did yet another thing no woman had ever thought to do before. She decided to run for president. She ran for the Equal Rights Party, who selected Frederick Douglass, a former slave and famous abolitionist, as her running mate. History holds Victoria Woodhull now as the first woman to seek the highest office in the land. But that doesn't mean she had a chance in hell. Her party didn't have a presence in most states, and Frederick Douglass had never met her and had never agreed to be her running mate. And though this point was brought up by historians years later, though it was not a talking point at the time, Victoria was technically ineligible because of her age. She wasn't going to be the required 35 years until just after the inauguration. Victoria did get a few thousand votes that election day, Most voting places just threw out any ballots that had her name on them or didn't bother to count them. 
they considered her a joke. President Ulysses S. Grant, who won re-election that year, got more than 3 million votes by comparison. Victoria learned the outcome of the election while she sat in a jail cell. It wasn't the first time. Here's what happened. Victoria and Tennessee, in one of their free love articles, went on a rant about how society ignored the infidelity of husbands while expecting wives to be faithful. And they used as an example the case of Henry Ward Beecher. In many ways, Beecher and Victoria were on the same side. He was an abolitionist and supported women's voting rights. He was a powerful man and well-known preacher. But he had shunned Victoria and Tennessee over the free love issue, and the ladies were outraged and happy to point out the hypocrisy of this because the very married Beecher had a mistress, one of his best friend's wives, actually. The wife had confessed the affair to her husband. Plus, there had been four years, a slew of rumors about many other women, including young members of his church. This story came out in the Woodhall and Claflin newspaper on November the 2nd, 1872. It sold 100,000 copies. And Victoria was promptly arrested and charged with sending obscene material through the mail. Vicky, turns out, had made an enemy of Anthony Comstock, the United States Postal Inspector and Secretary of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, dedicated to upholding Christian morality. Comstock had been hounding Victoria for months, sending authorities to seize her whenever she gave a speech about free love. He couldn't charge her. As backward as the United States was in the 19th century, she still had a right to freedom of speech. But they would detain her anyway, sometimes for up to 30 days in jail before releasing her. When she was arrested for the story about Henry Ward Beecher's affair, it landed her in a New York City jail the day of the presidential election in which she was a candidate. I suppose that's another first in Victoria's resume. They arrested Tennessee and Victoria's husband, Colonel Blood, as well. This time, she did go to trial. It had been one straw too much for the high and mighty Anthony Comstock. But Victoria was found not guilty. That only propelled Congress to pass the 1873 Comstock Laws, making it illegal to send obscene, immoral, or indecent publications through the mail. Henry Ward Beecher, by the way, would actually go on trial a couple of years after that for his adultery. The man whose wife he had been sleeping with brought a civil lawsuit against him. I'm not exactly sure what the legal mechanism for that was, but it went to a jury, which deliberated for six days before announcing they couldn't reach an agreement. 
now, Victoria's time in the spotlight was coming to an end. About six years after her arrival in New York City, she was broke, and her marriage to blood, if it was ever legal, was over. In 1877, Commodore Vanderbilt died, setting up a contest among his heirs for an estate that amounted to more than $100 million in 1877 currency. Some reports say Vanderbilt left a nice chunk of his money to the women. Others say one of Vanderbilt's sons paid them handsomely to leave the country, fearing what they might say if they were called to testify in hearings over the estate. Either way, the two women began the next chapter of their lives on the other side of the pond. They moved to England. They were still young, and in the end, their time in England would actually amount to more than half their lives. Victoria did some lecturing on spiritualism and sexuality. At one such engagement, she met a retired millionaire banker, and they married. She started a little newspaper and became an automotive and aviation enthusiast, She was one of the first women in England to own a car. Tennessee also married well. She married a Viscount and became Lady Cook, Viscountess of Montserrat. She was royalty. Victoria lived to the age of 87. She turned 80 in 1920. That was the year American women were finally given the right to vote. Victoria was no doubt pleased, but she still held to her original concept that the Constitution had never taken that right to begin with. She said, All this talk of women's rights is moonshine. Women have every right. They only have to exercise them. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you would like to hear more podcasts like ours, check out killerpodcasts.com. Be sure to tune in Wednesday for our 10-minute mysteries, and we will see you next week for another full episode. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.